Welcome to the Nature MI podcast. Here, we uncover nature-inspired solutions to the world's most urgent problems, like climate change and global pandemics. We talk with thought leaders and innovators who are taking their cues from nature, and we explore ways to unravel nature's deepest secrets. Now here's your host, a man who finds inspiration in nature on a daily basis, Dr. Victor Shamas. My guest today, Richard Register, is someone I consider to be a true visionary. For 55 years, Richard has devoted himself to the design of eco-cities, which are ecologically healthy cities. He has written seven books on this topic and helped organize 13 international conferences. He has also spoken about eco-cities in 36 different countries. When I call Richard a visionary, I do not use the term lightly. To me, a visionary is someone who has mastered what Jonathan Swift called the art of seeing the invisible. By his own admission, Richard's work is about something that doesn't exist yet. The eco-cities that he is envisioning have not yet been built. Some elements have been incorporated into urban design, but that's about it. If you look at Richard Register's books, you will see that they are filled with these glorious illustrations of cities as they could be, with beautiful plazas and terraces, bridges connecting buildings, rooftop restaurants, greenhouses, and other wonderful design elements. George Bernard Shaw wrote, You see things and say why, but I dream things that never were, and I say, why not? To me, what makes someone like Richard Register so remarkable is that he has put his money where his mouth is, investing his time, his energy, and his financial resources to something that is still a dream, up until now at least. But that is about to change. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded on April 28, 2020, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. We were faced with a number of technical challenges, partly because Richard lives in a remote area of Northern California. At one point, the conversation was interrupted by a hummingbird who crashed into his window. Richard had to stop and go outside to tend to this little bird, which is quite revealing about him. As you listen to this interview, you will hear some clicks and other ambient noises that we weren't able to filter out, unfortunately. I apologize for the distractions, but I also want you to know that the interview is well worth listening to. Richard Register offers some very important pieces of the puzzle as we seek to align ourselves fully and perfectly with nature. Without further ado, here's my interview with Richard Register. Enjoy. Richard Register, welcome to the Nature of My podcast. We're really happy to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, for me, your name is synonymous with eco-cities and sustainable cities. When I do searches online, I, I always find your name there. And so I want to know how that came to be. <laughs> well, I've been, been working on this subject for many, many years, since 1965, Ecologically Healthy Cities. So I've started a couple of nonprofit corporations and I've written several books on the subject. And that's what I do. I work with the whole subject of trying to make cities ecologically healthy, which is pretty challenging. But there's no reason why cities couldn't be creating their own good soil 
and uh, you know just composting the organic waste and recycling everything and designing for uh, passive solar energy and other forms that make sense in technology so why not it seems like it's an easy thing to define and to work on and that's what i do so what makes an eco city what are the defining qualities of of that type of city well, the defining qualities would be if they actually are ecologically healthy. I mean, not only not damaging, but actually uh, you could have cities designed so that they build soil. You could have public policies within those cities, the same sort of ordinances and laws that you have for zoning so that you have an eco city that does the recycling and that has a good relationship to the land and the energy flows in the, in the locality. In addition to all that, you can have uh, the laws that build on that whole philosophy and that preserve biodiversity. So if you have soil and the protection of biodiversity where you are, then you're really moving along pretty well. You have to understand certain things like uh, agriculture, making an organic and seasonally oriented agriculture. And then if you have uh, the technologies of solar energy and wind, the renewable technologies and so on, you're on your way to a really healthy way of building cities. Now, I know I've read uh, something about 2D versus 3D cities. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, the 2D city, uh, two-dimensional, flat, scattered, that's what you have with suburbia. And that's happened because of the automobile, uh, which came along, of course, around 1900, but became dominant in city design and sprawl layout uh, after the Second World War. And we've become so dependent on auto automobiles in so much of the world and scattered the city structure because of them and because of a lot of people wanting, you know, the scattered lifestyle where they have a separate house and yard and, and some uh, symbolic, really, some symbolic plants that grow in their yard. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not real uh, organic agriculture or anything. But in any case, the city scattered out over vast areas, uh, starting seriously, uh, probably in the 20s and getting much more extreme even uh, after the Second World War. So now we have cities that cover vast areas of land. They're totally dependent upon trucks and cars and asphalt, massive use of land surface, massive use of energy and so on. So, but we don't have to build that way. We can start thinking, well, how can you build a city so you can walk almost everywhere you need to go and you can bicycle to places that are a little bit farther? And so the answer there is something that the planners very often simply call mixed uses. In other words, you live close to where you work, you have shopping not too far away, you have your school close to where you're bringing up your kids, and all that sort of thing. In other words, it's proximity consciousness. I think that's a real key. If you think in terms of proximity, how do you get close proximity uh, in your urban design so that you don't have to travel large distances in the first place? That's a great uh, part of the solution to healthy cities. I used to live in Santa Cruz, California, and that was, instead of a grid system, it was kind of a ra radial system where it's, everything moved in circles. Uh, do, do eco cities necessarily have that kind of design, or have you thought about uh, kind of a more circular design for cities instead of more grid-like patterns? Well, that's uh, interesting to bring up the circle because, of course, the circle is uh, you uh, have equidistances within the circle getting around much more so than if you have, say, a, a star shape or a, uh, a sprawl surface that's very large and goes out down highways or linear. They used to call Las Vegas, for example, a linear city because it was all along the strip where they had the gambling places and so on. That's the worst of all possible arrangements where you have a long line and then you have to go immense distances to, to get to anything along that line. 
if you go to two dimensions, which is a flat sprawl, you still have to cover a vast area of land to get anywhere. But then when you get more three-dimensional, then there's a very quick compacting. Uh, say you have a four-story average height and uh, good enough room to bicycle around and walk between buildings and so on. And that can be, uh, you know, European density that can be quite convivial and lively, culturally exciting, and so on. The basic thing is to have a lot of variety close together in a really good design. And how do you do that? And how do you make it ecologically healthy? Well, you can do it by compact mixed-use development, which is kind of a formula in city planning. But if you take into account the sun angles uh, so that you're accessible to solar energy and you can uh, largely heat and light your city by the sun, that's a good thing. If you're conscious of the uh, relationship between your farming and your building of your soil, you can have uh, agriculture that goes back into the soil, enriches the soil, and tunes right in with the fact that we have human waste and uh, street uh, ornamental plants that get chopped up and can become part of the compost system. We have uh, a lot of ways of, of reintroducing into the soil the organic waste of the cities. And so when you start putting all those little pieces together, you can come up with some quite wonderful designs. And if you get fairly three-dimensional about it, you can do, for example, uh, multi-story greenhouses on the south side or the sunny side of your structures. And those become uh, incubators in cooler weather for gardens that you can move plants that you start in the greenhouse out into your gardens and grow food and other things that you might want. And you also, with passive solar heating in the solar greenhouses, you can have nice climate inside your, your uh, the town you're living in, which can be compact and, and uh, easily traversed by foot or bicycle. So there's some pretty simple things to think about. People just don't tend to do it because they're used to many other approaches. One of them is to have an ego-satisfying automobile that shows you're successful and you can get around vast distances easily. And so you can access the scattered cities we have right now. If you give up on your car, it's a little bit more difficult to have the social life that's expected in, in America and in Australia, Canada, places where a lot of infrastructure has been built around the car. But uh, you can live closer to your centers that are meaningful to you. Your town centers can be quite rich and diverse with uh, cafes, restaurants, eateries, uh, jobs, residential housing, uh, and you can tune into that with uh, solar greenhouses and rooftop gardens and so on. So the design possibilities are kind of wonderful. I love drawing pictures of this stuff. It's uh, mm. fun to do. And I would say that your art uh, in your books is, is very inspiring. Uh, that's one of the wonderful things about looking at your books is what about transportation? There are people, older people, people with disabilities, and a city that's very bicycle and pedestrian oriented may not be that accessible to them. What is the vision in these eco cities in terms of how you move people through the city? Well, quite the contrary, actually. If you have a, a slow-speed bicycle city instead of a high-speed car city, you can have a, the uh, wheelchairs, the uh, bicycles, the tricycles for little kids, the roller skates. I mean, there's a whole wide range of all these people-generated ways of getting around the city. In fact, I have a whole collection of all the very innovative sort of uh, skates and and uh, things that look sort of like gyroscopes you can ride around and just some pretty strange and interesting stuff, all human powered. And, uh, you know, all you're powering everything on your breakfast cereal. And that's great. That's the most efficient use of fuel that I can think of. Biofuel. 
How would you say that eco cities differ from other types of sustainable city designs? Is there something that's uniquely your signature in the design of these kinds of cities? Well, it's not my signature. It's a it's a general general law of organization. I mean, you have uh, bodies, uh, complex living organisms have to be three dimensional. They can't be shaped like tortillas. You know, too inefficient. That's the problem with sprawl, with the two-dimensional development with automobiles and asphalt and so on, is that it's scattered all over the place. You need enormous amounts of land and energy to do anything. If you're more compact, then, uh, then things work out a whole lot better. So that's kind of the basic thing. You just work with three dimensions, which means also that you have to have a diversity of activity close together. If you have the density, but all you have is, say, jobs... And then you have to figure out, well, you're going to get people there somehow. So let's have the people out there somewhere else and we'll get a transit system. Well, it works better if you think it through all the way that you're going to have a a town, a city, a village that's uh, like a living organism. It's basically fairly three-dimensional. And and, uh, say on a slightly larger scale, like a town scale, you might have bridges between five and eight-story buildings, for example. So you don't have to go down to the ground every time you want to go horizontally through the latticework of the town. So the, the design uh, possibilities are truly fun, uh, and I like drawing it. <laughs> My book, Cities <laughs> Illustrated, has 206 drawings in it and shows all sorts of alternatives from the basic structure and arrangement of the city to the details within. And is, I think it's just a delightful challenge. And I'm kind of shocked that so few architects really, really work it all the way through. In fact, I can't think of any right off the top. I mean, there's some who do solar greenhouses, and there's some that uh, have, have cities that are very strong on very excellent transit. You have Curitiba, Brazil, which is a really exciting city. Uh, for example, I, I started a series of conferences called the International Eco City Conference. We've been up to 13 now. They've been on all the, all the continents, and we've been in some pretty exciting cities, including Curitiba, Brazil which is supposed to be probably the, the best, most thoroughgoing, ecologically oriented city in the world right now, and has been since the late 70s. But in any case, uh, you can design cities so that the transit works fantastic, you have bicycle paths everywhere, you have fairly dense development, and if you really get serious about it, you can have things like bridges between buildings or rooftop restaurants and cafes, terraces uh, 10 stories up above the ground with absolutely fantastic views. I mean, it's just a wonderful palette to play with, and I'm totally shocked that so few architects and developers actually access all the possibilities there. In the time you've been doing this, have more eco-cities popped up around the world, or are there still very few of them? Well, there's a few places where people are are building what they call eco-cities, and there's a whole policy in China, probably largely because I've been going there for Uh, I haven't been there in two years. Suddenly my invitations evaporated. I'm not sure why. But in any case, I've been to China over and over for 25 years, and they actually instituted a national uh, eco-city building program with several eco-cities. The famous one is called Tianjin Eco-City. And I've been there seven times. I was there uh, almost immediately after they started working on it, and I had incredible contacts in China. It's just unbelievable. Uh, about 1990, I organized the first international eco-city conference, and I got a phone call from a Chinese fellow who had missed the conference the day after the conference. And he says, is the conference still happening? This is on a telephone. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm afraid not. I, it was over yesterday. He says, oh, no, I feel so lonely. <laughs> and I said to myself, 
who is this guy? <laughs> I feel so lonely. I mean, this is who he must be a really sweet guy. You know, he ended up being one of the best friends of my whole life. And he, he ran <laughs> the whole project in China and he hosted me to five international conferences there and, and hundreds of other people. I mean, it was fantastic. And they have a ancient eco city, and uh, it's pretty good. You know, it's uh, it's it's not the full on full spectrum design with buildings with bridges between them and some of that sort of thing. It has a little bit of that sort of thing, but not a lot. But you know, it's a real serious effort. And unfortunately, about three years ago, he died. I mean, he was such a powerful influence on a lot of projects there that that things have slowed down. I've been invited in the last two years. But anyway, it was uh, off to a great start in China, and it's been going on. It went that way for me for almost for about 20 years, actually. Have you seen some of your design ideas incorporated into cities like that? Yeah, but, you know, they're not my ideas. I just am a compiler of other people's ideas. I mean, I have design notions of my own and particular designs to look like this or that, or, you know, the bridge goes between this structure and that structure and the multi-story solar greenhouse is over there. And, you know, then you have your organic farming interrelating with a sewage system, maybe that composts, et cetera. So there are all these design things to deal with that are really pretty interesting. And some of those things actually exist in China. I mean, some pieces of that but there are no places I know of except in my drawings where all the pieces come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the gigantic scale, you can say, well, they all come together because, of course, a great big city, you know, it has its waste products and they go up into the air and they come down, you know, precipitates to get into the soil, then you have carbon coming out of the air and it uh, helps plants grow 100 miles away and you, and you have a, uh, some recycling and then you have some garbage dumps that don't do such a good job of that or whatever. But in any case, uh, every city is an ecological city. It's not necessarily a healthy ecology, mm. but uh, you know the pieces all connect. It's just that if you have the wrong kind of city, you have to have lots of trucks to carry everything around. You have to burn a lot of gasoline and to hold your city together if it's scattered. But if you have it close on, you have the opportunity that you were uh, sort of intimating a while ago that, hey, it's a good place for old people, young people, people with disabilities because you don't you're not competing with the car all the time you're designing around you know bicycles and pedestrians and wheelchairs i mean the design is built in you have bridges above ground level say six and 12 stories up or something like that in a fairly dense city of say 35 100,000 and then in the super big cities still the compactness you can design in ways that are pretty cool you know it's a whole design palette that is quite logical you pay attention to minimizing your land cover to having wonderful views letting the air and sunshine flow through bridges between structures etc and come up with this fantastic palette of things that can be designed and built and very little is built like that but some what about neighborhoods or or co-housing or or sections of cities i mean is there any attempt to just kind of implement some of these design strategies neighborhood by neighborhood instead of trying to do it full on for an entire city well of course it would help to have a zoning code that encourages it neighborhood by neighborhood but most zoning codes prohibit the kind of thing that that you can do with highly mixed use uh, denser forms of centers oriented development instead of you know larger chunks of the city zone for specialties uh, across a wide area then you need all your transportation and so on so, uh, I mean, there, there are people like the uh, co-housing people that are building a lot of co-housing. I've been a, a national speaker for them a few times, 
and they they do great work you know they they create some co-housing projects they're quite inspirational with a lot of housing around some wonderful open spaces where they have gardens and things like that not too far from me here i live in a place called williams california which is uh not too far from sacramento and north of davis but in davis there's uh, village homes which is probably one of the nicest sort of suburban layout ecological designs you've ever seen you know, they have just every kind of garden you can imagine, and they have a path system for bicycles and people on foot that's behind the building, so that you have sort of two fronts to all your houses. You have the cars arrive in, in the narrowest kind of streets you can build by Davis ordinances on one side, and a garage, you know, and most people do have a car because they're, you know, in Davis and all that. But on the other side, you have a bicycle path system, and you have little gates, and you have wonderful fruit trees and vegetable gardens, and a very large uh, garden that everybody can use. And so there's this, this big community garden, and then everybody has their private gardens and their backyards, but it's not really their backyards, because that's where so much, socio- so much sociability comes about, because there's a bicycle path, and people lean over their backyard fences and talk to one another, and you can you know, pick fruit off trees, <laughs> bicycle past your neighbor's house, <laughs> stuff like that. It's pretty That's amazing. Wonderful. Yeah, it sounds wonderful from what I've read about it. And But these co-housing type communities rarely build up. I mean, the ones I've seen in Arizona are tend to be one story. So they're not really doing that 3D thing you've been talking about, right? Well, they're just not, uh, they haven't gone into the higher density development and uh, they could. Uh, the co-housing places I know are typically two and three stories, by the way. Uh, oh, really? But I have known, I've been a national speaker for the co-housing people a couple of times, and, and then I've gone to their events, and I like what they do. And I visit a lot of co-housing projects. In fact, one of the, the largest one in the country, I think, is Ithaca, Ithaca Co-Housing in Ithaca, New York. And uh, I, I uh, was the keynote speaker for their conference where they decided, they made the decision to build uh, e- Ithaca Eco Village, and they built it. And I've been back several times, and it's a wonderful project. And it has about, I think nowadays, uh, three neighborhoods they call it. And I think there's about 150 people per neighborhood. The numbers might be slightly off, but not off by much. Anyway, that's outside of Ithaca, New York. Wonderful place. Guy named, a woman named Joan Bocair uh, was one of the major uh, influences in starting that. And she became a friend of mine in 1990 and um, did a fabulous job ever since. What about cities that are sprawled? I live in one of those cities. Have you given much thought to retrofitting cities that have already kind of gone off the deep end? Uh, do you envision a way that cities like that can scale back and turn into eco-cities? Or, you know, is it possible that, that those areas of sprawl that are now suburbs could be turned into eco-villages within a city or something like that? Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, I worked for many years in Berkeley. There, there are difficulties in redoing the city that exists like that. One of which is that people have their property. They want to, they want to be secure. They want to go with the safest sort of uh, opportunity. You think, well, you have a big fire, like we had this colossal fire in the Berkeley, Oakland Hills, and you think, well, you got to rebuild now, so there's an opportunity. But in fact, people get fearful and they get more conservative than ever. They want to build back exactly what they lost and then start thinking after they've recovered, which is natural. You know, it's, it's not a bad thing, but it, uh, it works against doing innovative projects after a disaster. 
like an earthquake, for example, could create another disaster. But we've had fires in the East Bay. Uh, I've lived in Oakland and Berkeley for many years. And those fires make it possible to do colon redesign, but that's too complicated for most people because you'd have to, to rearrange the zoning and everything very rapidly. And people are reluctant to change uh, basic standards at a time of crisis like that. So in one way, it's the best time of all for opportunity for designing better cities. And in, the, and in another way, you know, human foibilities, you know, human uh, habits and existing zoning and so on mitigate against the eco-city solution. And it would be a solution. Do you see any signs that the tide is turning in favor of these kinds of ideas of sustainable cities and communities? I wish I could say I do, but I don't. Uh, I mean, there, there have been the entire time I've been working on ecological city designs, which go back to the late 1960s. And the whole time, there have been some people that are quite excited about it, and they want to adopt uh, some elements, as many as they can, and that has ended up with mixed-use developments. It's ended up with some pretty spectacular uh, smaller-scale buildings with really wonderful solar greenhouses on the, on the south, sunny side in the northern hemisphere, things like that. And so a lot of good stuff has happened, but it's hard to get from the individual property up to the neighborhood level. And then it's hard to get from the zoning code, the votes, to actually find the centers of the city and start augmenting them. So what I'm leading into here now is you can do an eco-city mapping system for the city and apply it over a long period of time, like say 50 years, which is longer than, you know, my work life is going to barely be 50 years when I'm gone. But in any case, there is a way to work with that. And that is you look at the city map and you find the lively spots, the downtown, the major neighborhood centers, maybe there's some special arts districts or so on. Uh, restaurant districts are fairly common, usually adjacent to an arts district, and so on. And you can augment those. You can move more people in there. You can do ecological city design. You can have rooftop gardens. You can have terraces. You can have bridges between buildings. You can make the place really lively. You can close a number of streets. You don't have to close them all. You don't have to go all the way to be like a Venice or, you know, some parts of Amsterdam or something where, where you know, there are just no cars around. Uh, but you can go in that direction. You can have bridges over streets that still have cars in them. And later on, maybe you can take the cars off the street and then everybody is using little carts and bicycles and buses and all that sort of stuff. So there's steps along the way that can be done uh, that's uh, not rocket science, as I say. You don't need degrees. You don't need uh, high math. <laughs> you, know, you, just, <laughs> you just need a little bit of three-dimensional thinking, you know, like, Three-dimensional thing, okay, you got a two-story house instead of a one, you know, or you have a three-story house instead of a one. And then you put some bridges in, and then you have good sun angles. So you have some open spaces where the sun gets down into some nice plazas, and the people like to gather there and have coffee and wine, whatever. Uh, you know, it's then you have very human design that you can plug right in. There are places like that in Europe all over the place. Uh, you know, just go take a vacation there and find a nice town square somewhere and and some of them, you check out the sun angles and you say, hey, you know, this is great. You could have solar greenhouses on the north side of the plaza here. And you could put some rooftop restaurants in. You know, in China, there are lots of rooftop restaurants. You don't get much in the U.S. and Europe. But in China, India, around the Himalaya Mountains, which might have something to do with it because you get fabulous views. You know, why have a restaurant down on ground level looking away from the Himalaya Mountains? It's insane. These things are yeah. gorgeous. Just, you just right. it, it's your breath away, you know. So you want to have a terrace garden type 
restaurant facing the mountains because they are absolutely wonderful. I've been there four times. I just love it there. It's fantastic. So anyway, but you can look out over farm country. You can see where your food comes from. You can be up in the air. You can be where the birds are flying. I mean, uh, it's just a a wonderful palette of all sorts of possibilities. I'm I'm really kind of stunned that it's so hard to get people to just access the full palette and choose the favorite things and build a sucker. Well, you've pointed out that cities are the sort of the biggest thing that human beings have created, and, and they may very well be our, our undoing unless we get them right. So part of the trick of all this seems to be how to take what we've already constructed and sort of deconstruct, if that's possible, to turn them into eco-cities. I think that's going to be a big challenge if humanity has any hope. What, what's, what's your impression of that? I mean, what do we do with big cities like Dallas or Houston or Los Angeles or any number of them now that have congested freeways and uh, so much sprawl? Well, the two big categories to think about here, one of them is you find the centers and you augment them. And the other one is you actually do withdraw. You have programs that should be in place where you can get financing for buying properties that are going to lose money, but they're subsidized because you get this great social benefit. And so you have a house that's, say, worth $200,000, but it's far from any centers. You can't walk anywhere there. You have to drive a car, you know, so it's not a really good place to be located if you're interested in ecological cities. And yet a half a mile away, you have something that's very close to a, you know, a very lively spot. So at the lively spot, you, uh, you have zoning that encourages apartments. You know, be like, oh, I don't want an apartment on my block. He said, well, you do good design, you know. I mean, you hate people. Why don't you want any more people on your block, you know? And besides, some of the people can, you know, add cultural variety. You know, some of them really cook well, and there'd be a couple of nice new restaurants or something. I mean, there's, there's an imaginative, positive way to look at this transition. And it's easy enough to script a zoning code that over the years shifts the tax base investing towards the centers, centers-oriented development instead of scattered development, simple as that. And you get so much out of that. You get walkability, you get uh, conviviality where you see people face-to-face, you uh, get into the details like the plazas, the rooftop gardens and terraces and the restaurants where you get views from what I call a keyhole plaza, for example. You don't have a plaza, but it isn't just a completely enclosed plaza. It has one edge that's open to nature. Looks down a river or something, looks down a coastline or off to a mountain or something, and you connect with nature by simply having your plaza look at nature. You know, you have a, a corner missing, and, and you look out into the view of what you're surrounded by in agriculture with the tractors going back and forth, whatever goes on in agriculture, you know, harvesting food and all that. Or maybe it's a natural landscape, maybe you have a marsh out there with a lot of migratory birds off and on. The palette's fantastic if you want to actually get into it. The problem is, one of the problems is that everybody's invested in what we already have now and they don't want to lose any money. So one of the things you can do is create government programs that subsidize this stuff. You know, say it's going to save everybody. I mean, where does the money come from for highways and police departments? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is public money, right? Well, yep. extend that a little bit and design eco-cities and finance them that way. It's, it's a matter of just loosening up a little bit and seeing what the possibilities are. It's about political will, right? I mean, it's about enough people saying, we need to live this way. That's Um, right. I was in Sicily, and I saw one of the most beautiful piazzas I've ever encountered. 
it was shaped like a boat. So it was narrow on the two sides and it opened up into this big, wide, marble, magnificent architecture. And it was a mixed use. So there was a church, there were different kinds of businesses, restaurants, cafes. And on a Sunday evening, you would hear the people walking. You could hear the voice of joy. Yeah, you know, people joyously sharing. And I came back to the U.S. craving those kinds of plazas here. You know, and so few of our cities have anything to compare. When I was a kid, I, uh, I heard this environment that was spectacular, which is that I, I had a grandmother who lived in Bermuda. And I'd go to Bermuda. And then when she moved out, I was good friends with the neighbors. So they invited me back. And I've been to Bermuda several times and really enjoyed it. Uh, but there was a hotel called the Princess Hotel right across this this small bay. And the small bay had maybe only 40 boats on it because that's how small it was. And the Princess Hotel was across this little bay. And in the afternoons, I have a Pepsi-Cola. I wasn't drinking anything then. I was a teenager and I'd go have a Pepsi. So I was sitting there sipping my Pepsi and I'd hear the people, this murmuring of voices and the tinkling mm. of ice and glasses and mm. the laughter and the people enjoying themselves was wafting over this this little bay. You know, it was only maybe 200, 300 yards across. And it was so intimate and happy. And you say, well, why don't you have these convoluted coastlines with these places like that all over the place? You know, they don't have to be an expensive hotel. That was a middle expensive hotel. But, you know, uh, public plazas, you know, where people gather in these normal cafes around them and things like that. So anyway, the, the palette of yes. all these possibilities for ecological design are absolutely wonderful and numerous. So the theme of this podcast is, you know, nature inspiration, nature inspired solutions. How, how much of your inspiration in, the, in your designs comes from drawing upon what you see in nature? Well, there's two, two major areas of following the model, you might say. One is that uh, complex living organisms are organized in three dimensions all the way down to the DNA in your cells. You know, you have these, these uh, nucleuses in your cells that are little three-dimensional globs, you know, with all sorts of stuff going on. Because for three dimensions, you, you get, from three dimensions, you get complex circuitry that can link up the shortest possible distances. You know, like your brain, you know. I mean, it's a fairly small thing. And it has all the circuitry very, very close together. So all the links are really, can be very efficiently organized. So anyway, that's, that's one thing that, that we can think about uh, in city design, town design, village design. The other thing is the, the interface with nature. Uh, so you just pop out the door. I mean, if you're in a suburban sprawl, you don't pop out any door. You go to your garage, you get in your car, you drive down the driveway, you head down the highway, you go outside of town someplace, you try to find a park, you find a park, you park your car, you walk, you know, through uh, the parking lot, and then you finally get to a grassy lawn with a bunch of people having picnics, you know? I mean, that, you could design and say, walk out the door, and there mm -hmm. it is. Yeah that should be done as a regular thing. It should be one of the things that's the primary thing for what we physically build to live in, period. Mm -hmm. This is gigantic. It, uh, it applies to villages, towns, cities, everything. 
But for some reason, it's extremely hard to get people to pop back and say, oh, we can design that, we can build that. And yet pieces of it have been designed and built all over the place. And you can see whole right. functioning cities in Europe that have 80% of the full palette going for it. They just don't have solar energy. They don't have recycling. But, you know, it's not, a, it's not quote, rocket science. You don't have to have higher math and, you know, physics degrees to pull this off. As we close this, I, I'd like to ask my guests to give us some uh, parting wisdom. And so in all your years... In all your years of doing this kind of work, uh, is there something that you've gleaned from it? Something you've gained that you could that you could impart upon us, upon me, and my, and also our listeners? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think I'd say, uh, don't be afraid of innovation. Try to go for the best. Think it through. It can be done. I mean, you can start seeing the city as a living organism and start supporting moving in that direction. You know, it's got to be political to start, unfortunately, or fortunately. I mean, it's just got to be that people get together and they decide how they're going to, you know, arrange their towns. I don't know how you can get around that one. You have to deal with zoning. You have to deal with property ownership. You have to deal with a lot of social issues. And, well, I don't want more neighbors. You know, I like it quiet. You know, okay, well, some people are like that. So you find a part of town where you can actually have an ecologically healthy center and you can have more people living there and you can have organic uh, gardens around that thing and you can have bicycles connecting it to the rest of the city. One thing I'd say is something that's extremely practical is to be courageous to look at maps. You pull out a map, somebody says, oh, these ecological city ideas are really great. Let's see, how would you do that? And I say, well, let's look at a map. They pull out a map and they see, oh, there's my house. I don't want anything to change anywhere near it. End of topic. No, uh, because you can say, look, it's gonna, it takes time to think this through. Uh, there are ordinances that have to be passed. There is politics that has to happen in education where people debate these things. It's going to take years. You know, I mean, this is not a slam dunk, easy deal. It's going to take years to build ecologically healthy cities, and a lot of people are going to be involved in it. And there's some time. Don't worry about it. Don't freak out, you know face the possibility that if we design well, and if we design carefully in five years from now, we can be way down the road towards much, much, much healthier ways of living by shaping up the city for pedestrians and bicycles, you know, supported by transit, compact design, awareness of sun angles and the local conditions of wind and rain and soils and everything, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a fun challenge, but most people <clears throat> lock into things like, well, my property value, uh, how do I deal with, the, you know, might be some mm. changes in my investment policy, you know, in my life, because a lot of it's the real estate I own, blah, blah, and I'm nervous about that. Be courageous. I don't know. I think that's the only thing I can say is, is hook your imagination to some courage, you know, and say, mm. we can design a healthy way of living. And then get busy and, and face the problems when you start doing something like that and, and understanding that it's, the, it's one of the most important things to be done in the world is to learn how to build our habitat, the places where we live, our home, in a way that's harmonious with the home that's the whole planet. That's beautiful, Richard. Thank you so much. And I want to express my gratitude for you uh, taking this time to, to talk with us. It's, it has been a real pleasure. Well, it's always fun. So anytime you want someone who wants this kind of conversation is fun, I'm the guy to call. Absolutely. Well, we look forward to having you back real soon. Uh, So thanks again and looking forward to the next conversation. And that concludes our program, which is episode four of the Nature of My podcast. 
I want to thank Richard Register for taking the time to share his wisdom about EcoCities. And I want to thank you for listening to and supporting this podcast. I'm excited to share with you some upcoming podcasts, which include an interview with Patrick Farnsworth, the host of the brilliant Last Born in the Wilderness podcast, and Richard Heinberg from the Post Carbon Institute. In episode five, I plan to share a radical new vision for the future. Until then, stay well, stay tuned, and stay inspired. have been listening to the Nature MI podcast. To learn more about what we're doing to bring humanity more into balance with nature, please visit us at naturemi.com. We also welcome your ideas and feedback. If you would like to be a guest on a future podcast, let us know about your nature-inspired solutions and strategies. Thanks for listening.